Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 252 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. That's Crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. prn.fm has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805 and leave a message or question for the show. Also leave your name and make sure you indicate that it's for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know your listener until I hear from you. Send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from my listeners. Don't be shy. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. And thanks to those who recently took this option. Or you can commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com, where we are also Infectious Myth, one word. And thanks also to the people who donated in that way. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want to, this show to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information that you are gleaning, for the support you get for some of your non-mainstream ideas and the challenges to others. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. I had a couple of comments that indicated some problems understanding the Bustin interview. And uh, I, I sympathize with that. It was very technical. I'm glad I did the interview because I think it's extremely important to get this on the, the record. Um, I see Bustin as a pretty, as a, a scientist with integrity who answered the questions without trying to figure out what the politically right answer would be. This is not like talking to a public health official. Um, and some of the things he said surprised even me. Uh, so I'll read these comments, and then I think I'll talk more about the RT-PCR test and how it's used for the coronavirus. And if I go through it myself, now that I've had the experience of interviewing Professor Bustin and reading a lot of his work, uh, hopefully I can do it in a more coherent fashion. Janet wrote, I just listened to your podcast with Professor Stephen Bustin. I have zero background in any kind of science, so what I did was listen once, then I read his paper to which you provided a link, then I researched some of the terminology used, then I listened a second time. I would strongly suggest that your listeners could get a lot out of this discussion by doing something similar. The second time I heard the podcast, I was able to follow along pretty well. You might want to share this with people because it was effective. And certainly if you have the time, you might want to do this. I also have a little explainer on um, RT-PCR that I put on the website, theinfectiousmyth.com, just underneath the Bustin interview. So if you read that, that may help you with some of the basic concepts and some of the basic problems. Beyond that, I noted that Bustin is considering putting together guidelines related to the tests being done re-coronavirus. 
It would be most interesting to me if he could review the testing that is being done currently to determine what he thinks about how scientists are going about doing this right now, as I'm assuming that must be available to him. In particular, I wonder about the Wuhan information. Uh, I know that you and I talked about Koch's postulates, and this does not seem to be part of what Professor Buston is talking about. But I would love to know what he thinks about how and what is being isolated from these swabs. So I was a bit sorry that you didn't have a chance to ask him. Or if you did, I'd love to know what he thought. I was wondering if in front of your next podcast, you could do a quick recap of the main takeaways from the Buston podcast. It might entice people to spend the necessary time to listen to it again. Just my two cents, uh, Janet. So the reason I didn't talk about Cox postulates is because RT-PCR is designed to try to quantify the amount of RNA. And the test itself, uh, the RT-PCR test can work on uh, RNA that comes from our own cells, from bacteria, fungi, or from a virus. So it's, it's kind of irrelevant. The question of whether the RNA is viral is outside of the context of um, RT-PCR, and uh, the professor is not a virologist. And also, um, I thought that he might get a little bit upset if I was questioning a, a fundamental principle, which he probably takes as an assumption. Scientists have a tendency to assume that everything outside of their uh, domain of interest is true and that they can just rely on it. And uh, it makes them uncomfortable when somebody challenges them on something that's outside their domain of interest because they actually probably don't know much about it and they can't really respond to it. But innately, they, they think, I need to defend um, you know, science, defend the walls of science from the vandals who are trying to rip it down. Jim, via email, wrote, thank you for your efforts, and I would like to also say that I felt compelled to seek the voice of reason in this interesting time, and I'm glad I was able to find yours. I discovered your interview on the Higher Side Chats and have since been listening to your podcast direct from your website. With regard to your last interview with Stephen Buston, I have listened but do not understand the detailed technical jargon. Are you able to express what his concerns are in simpler language? This is helpful when I want to explain it to others. Uh, and so on the basis of these two comments and some other information I received and just my feeling that, that I was getting in pretty deep with, um, with Buston, um, that I, I felt it was important to try to go over the ground again, but this time maybe more slowly and to try to explain some of the things that Buston would have known right off the bat. There was no point in going through uh, with him. Maybe the first place we should start is to tr try to define what RNA is. It stands for ribonucleic acid as opposed to DNA, which is deoxyribonucleic acid. RNA and DNA are chemically uh, very similar. Uh, DNA is composed of four what we might call beads on a chain, A and T that pair together as opposites, and G and C, so adenosine, thymidine, guanine, cytosine. RNA also has the A, the G, and the C, but the T, or the thymidine in DNA, is replaced by uracil in the RNA. If the cell wants to do something like create some proteins, it needs to create some, uh, some RNA. So in the nucleus, 
it opens up a portion of the DNA and it takes one side of the DNA and it, it uh, makes a copy. Now when copies are made either with DNA or RNA, it is the opposite. So in other words, the, the C um, is matched with a G, the G with a C, the T in DNA with an A, and the A in DNA with a U or uracil. So the RNA chain is the opposite of the, the DNA chain. It then leads, leaves the nucleus and um, can go and produce a protein. That's probably the most simple and most commonly understood uh, uh, function of RNA. But there are many, many different types of RNA that are found in human cells and some that are only found in bacteria or fungi. Um, and they all perform very different but very important functions throughout the human body or for other organisms. We also know that um, within every cell of our body there are things called mitochondria which um, are believed to be symbiotic, uh, ancient kind of bacteria. Uh, this was a theory I think that came out in the 1960s and um, was treated with some scorn, but it's, it's now seen as uh, true that mitochondria have their own DNA, but they also have their own RNA. And obviously, bacteria and fungi that are often within our body also have their own DNA, uh, own RNA. Plants have RNA, and of course, it's believed that there are viruses that contain RNA. The RT-PCR test works off RNA, and it doesn't really care where the RNA came from. So in the RT-PCR test, there's no assumptions made within the testing procedure that it's dealing with a virus. The assumption that it's viral RNA is imposed on the test by human beings. Human beings say, we know that this RNA is viral, therefore, if you test positive for this RNA, that means that you're infected with the virus. So if you question the existence of the virus like me, you would have to question the benefit of RT-PCR testing, which I do. But I, I want to uh, not to be arrogant about my beliefs. And if I'm wrong about the existence of the virus, I want to point out that even so, the RT-PCR test has a lot of problems. So. You start with the RT-PCR process, you start with a sample. Often in the case of coronavirus, it's a nasal swab. Now a nasal swab is going to contain cells from your nose, it's going to contain probably mucus, especially if you're sick, uh, probably some bacteria, um, bits and pieces of dust, and all kinds of different things. So the RNA is is um, the, the sample is treated to try to separate the RNA from everything else because a lot of the RNA is wrapped up, they believe, in viral particles, but it's also wrapped up in cell membranes and other things like that. They also, as Bustin noted, have to try to reduce the presence of um, chemicals that could affect, impact the PCR process that comes later. So what you ideally want is as pure a source of RNA as possible, but it's not 
really possible to obtain pure RNA. So there will be other things in your RNA sample, and those will affect the outcome of the RT-PCR. But now you have something that is RNA that's freed up, that is relatively concentrated, and you're now going to run the reverse transcriptase step. So what I described earlier of DNA producing RNA is called transcription. The DNA is transcribed to RNA. The DNA separates in the portion that you want to transcribe. You produce some RNA. The DNA closes back up again. And that is what's considered the normal process. Reverse transcription is where RNA goes into the nucleus and it actually uh, transcribes to DNA. So it can add DNA. And this was discovered, I believe, in the 1970s. It's believed to be something that retroviruses, that's hence the name retro, as in the HIV virus, the retroviruses do this, but it was also discovered that it was part of normal cells. And exactly what this is, is doing is still somewhat uh, a mystery. So the reverse transcriptase enzyme, whatever its purpose, if you put it in with a bunch of RNA, will produce DNA. And the PCR, the reason for this is, as Bustin said, the PCR test doesn't work very efficiently on RNA. So you really want it to work on DNA. But the DNA is the complement of the RNA. So here, uh, if you have a, a uracil in the RNA, you're going to get an A, an adenosine in the, the, the DNA, and, and so on. So you get DNA that is um, a slightly distorted mirror image of the RNA. And from now on, you don't actually care about the tiny amount of RNA in the sample. The problem with this uh, process is it's relatively inefficient. Uh, Bustin said that you're not likely to get more than 50% of the RNA converted to DNA through this process. And he also said that the amount can vary widely. So if you're trying to quantify the amount of RNA, you have a big problem. In, in one of his papers, which was published in 2017, he said that the range of of efficiencies could range, could differ by a factor of 100. He kind of backed off on that a little bit when I talked to him, but he said a factor of 10. So two different scientists uh, could get, one could get 10 times the DNA out of the same sample as another scientist, depending on the chemicals they're using, the reverse transcriptase enzyme, and um, you know, lots of other factors, and it's possible that different types of samples may uh, act with different levels of efficiency. So it's, it's really impossible to quantify what you have when you, don't, you can't correlate the amount of DNA that you got at this step with the amount of RNA. You're, you now have a certain amount of DNA, and you're, gonna, you're going to fairly efficiently count that with the PCR process, but you don't know how much RNA you started with. And this was an important point that Bustin made. So we now move on to the PCR step, the brilliant invention of Kerry Mullis, who received the Nobel Prize in 1993. 
and he had this idea that you could put some DNA in a test tube and you could manufacture identical copies. And so how this works is you choose some primers, which are really short strands of DNA. So uh, ACGT, combinations of ACGT, maybe 10 or 30. And there's one at the beginning and one at the end. And these primers will naturally latch on to the DNA that matches them, kind of like um, a magnet will latch on to a, ma a magnet with the opposite polarity. A south magnet will latch on to north and so on. Also, uh, Bustin mentioned probes, and these are also strands of DNA that will latch on to the DNA strand. So you now have three pieces of DNA that are, that are latched on, but they don't make up the entire area that you want to replicate. We'll get to that in a little bit. Now, these probes are a, another very clever invention of Kerry Mullis. It came along uh, several years later than PCR itself. So the probes are not just a list of the nucleoside, uh, nucleotides, the beads that make up DNA, but they also contain a fluorescent molecule at one end and a so-called suppressor at the other end. And as long as this this uh, little string is intact, the molecule will not fluoresce. It will not glow. But what happens is when you add, you have nucleotides, you have a, a huge number of nucleotides just floating around in this, uh, in this test tube. They will naturally start to attach themselves to the end of the growing DNA chain. And when they reach the probe, they free the fluorescent molecule and they free the suppressor molecule. And because they're no longer attached, uh, you will get a tiny glow coming from the fluorescent molecule. And so that is why measuring the glow is an approximate marker for the amount of DNA that you have produced so far. Now, the brilliant thing about this process is that just by changing the temperature, in the test tube, you cause the DNA to separate, duplicate, and then you have two copies of the DNA. And if you continue this cycling, uh, which is maybe one minute per cycle, if you continue this cycling, you double at each step. Uh, Bustin talked about DNA efficiency or PCR efficiency. If the efficiency was 100%, then you would exactly double the amount of DNA at each step. So if you run 10 cycles, you would have uh, a thousand times more approximately. If you run 20 cycles, a million times more, 30 cycles, a billion, and 40 cycles, a trillion times more DNA than you started with. The idea is that the, the cycle numbers obviously relative to the amount of RNA that you started with. But Bustin's point was there's, there's no fixed connection. And his suggestion was that you add uh, at the uh, very beginning of the process a known quantity of a different RNA, and you simultaneously duplicate both of them. 
And then from the number of cycles it takes to see the, uh, the spike RNA, you can calculate the efficiency of the process, including the reverse transcriptase step. And then you can actually quantify things. Um, it might seem that when you're using a test to just to see if there's RNA present, that you're not really quantifying. But the PCR cycle number is uh, a quantification. If your cutoff is, it's, let's say, the equivalent of, uh, you know, 100 molecules of RNA or less in the original sample, and for somebody that's uh, cycle, uh, cycle count 37, for somebody else it might be 34 or 40. So if you choose an arbitrary cycle number, you are not cutting off the positive to negative differentiation at the same point. And, you know, theoretically, there should be no RNA. So if you ran for 100 cycles, you should not be able to produce any RNA because there's nothing there, or, you know, produce any DNA, pardon me, because the PCR, now we're working with DNA. You should not be able to produce any DNA because there is none to duplicate. So if you're doubling zero at every step, at the end you still have zero. The problem is that if you run PCR too long, you're not really measuring DNA, you're measuring fluorescence, and the amount of fluorescence can slowly grow and you can end up with a false signal, which doesn't indicate the presence of DNA. It indicates that you've been running the algorithm too long. And I've been, I've been looking at the cycle threshold a little bit more. Bustin recommended that the cycle threshold should be between, he said, 20s and 30s. But given that he had 35 as, as a recommended limit, I guess he means 20 through 35. So you shouldn't do more than 35 cycles. The least I have seen is 36. But I have been looking at test kit labels for uh, approved RT-PCR tests um, in the United States, approved by the federal, uh, the FDA, under the emergency use authorization. And most of those recommend cycle numbers between 40 and 45. It seems almost certain that using that many cycle numbers is going to result in a lot of false positives. It, it, it seems strange that people would want to push RT-PCR to the limit, but I think public health officials are so panicked by this virus, they want to eliminate false negatives, and they don't care about false positives. They haven't thought about the consequences of false positives. Uh, so. But, I mean, one way to do that is to declare everybody infected. And then there's no um, false negatives, because there's no negatives. Everybody's positive. That's obviously ridiculous. But that's what they're pushing towards with these high cycle thresholds that they're using to distinguish between positive and negative. Another problem with RT-PCR that is admitted even by the CDC on their test kit description is that the test cannot indicate that the virus RNA that's found is functional. So let's assume the RNA is only comes from a virus and it's unique. But maybe there are viral particles that have been disrupted by the immune system that have fallen apart 
the RNA is still lying around, would you test positive? The answer is yes. Uh, I listened to a very mainstream uh, virologist, Vince Racinello, I think his name is, from New York, uh, talking about his experiments with the Zika virus, and he said that they can pick up positive RT-PCR signals 60 days after he believes the infection has ended. So dead, disrupted virus could cause um, a positive. Another really important point is, are we looking for the entire genome? In uh, one test uh, from Charité Berlin, which is a Berlin hospital, they had, uh, they looked for three different regions of what they considered to be the viral genome that amounted to about 300 nucleotides, which is about 10% of the entire virus. So there's obviously a much greater chance that these regions could occur in other viruses or could be endogenous part of the human body because you're not looking for the whole virus. But is this all just theory? You know, RT-PCR is a very complicated test, although um, Boston did agree with me that if you put something very complicated in a, in a nice shiny box, people think of it as very simple. Uh, I wonder how we think about our automobiles. You know, extremely complicated things, and there are some people who understand what's going on reasonably well, but then there's the majority, like me, who have very limited understanding of how the whole thing um, works. And I just press, you know, I just turn the key and it, and it runs, and that's all I need to know. But it's different with something like RT-PCR because you're actually programming it. It's for each different kind of test. So it's a little bit like if you wanted to uh, drive your car on the freeway, somebody had to go in and make a whole bunch of settings uh, versus if you want to drive it on a gravel road, somebody has to go in and make a whole bunch of different settings. Um, we would have to rely on the expertise of those people. And there are now something like 50 different tests approved by the FDA. They're all slightly different. How can we be confident in all of these tests? How can we be confident in any of these tests since they all seem to be making um, assumptions like the use of cycle numbers that are pushing the, the test beyond its, its limits? But I think it is more than theory because we actually have results that show us that there are times when the test is clearly not working. One that's quite amusing just came out of um, China in a pre-publication paper. A 68-year-old Chinese man went to the hospital with symptoms that didn't sound that serious, but he tested positive for coronavirus and he went to hospital and his, he got better and he tested negative twice. So they released him. But then they tested him again and twice he tested positive and he was readmitted and uh, Bizarrely, he was put on antiviral drugs. So he was put on antiviral drugs because they so believed that the test was accurate 
that even though he had no symptoms, they felt that he was sick. And, and this is where the modern world is, that sickness has become virtual. If your test is positive, you're sick. It's got nothing to do with your symptoms. Anyway, he survived the antiviral drugs, and he tested negative four times. So they released him again. A few days later, he tested positive again. He was readmitted to the hospital, put on antiviral drugs again, and then a few days later was um, tested negative and was released. And I don't know when this happened. It's probably fairly recent, but this guy might go around in this cycle forever. And it's kind of funny, but if you were this person who was, what's that song about um, the, the subway in Boston, the Kingston Trio, and uh, somebody got on when the fare was a dime and they increased it to 15 cents and he only had a dime so he couldn't get off and he's still on the subway going around and around because he can't get off. It's a little bit like this. I mean, is this 60-year-old guy going to be spending two years effectively in jail, going to hospital, being let out, going back to hospital uh, because his test results are screwed up? In this paper, it was clear that the scientists had not seriously considered the possibility of a false positive. It was, it was not mentioned. Another paper from China uh, reported on consecutive testing results from 27 people out of about 600 patients, I think it's about 5%. These are people who had rather inexplicable test results. So they defined the, the test results as either N negative, P positive, or D dubious. They didn't define dubious, but I assume what this is is that the cycle count is, say, between 37 and 39, uh, such as one paper that I looked at. And so if they had 36 or less, they were positive. If they had 37 to 39, they were dubious, and 40 and over, they were negative. I assume it was something like that, even though they didn't uh, define it. So I will read some of the test results. And remember, these are consecutive results. They probably were several days apart. So we had one person who was dubious, dubious, positive, dubious, dubious. Another person, negative, 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 positive, negative. Um, another person, negative, dubious, dubious, positive, negative. Um, there was somebody in there who was negative, positive, negative, positive. Uh, positive, positive, negative, dubious, positive, negative. Uh, negative, positive, negative, positive. Positive, negative, positive, negative. Positive, negative, positive. Several people had that. Um, so I don't want to bore you with these, but there were uh, 27 different people who had bizarre results that do not fit with the... They, they do not allow you to believe that the RT-PCR test is accurate as used for coronavirus or that the viral theory is correct. So one of the things you could believe is that the RT-PCR test is seriously flawed and it can produce either a lot of false positives or, or false negatives. Another thing you could uh, think of is that the RNA is not viral, and so the fact that the RNA comes and goes, that's what RNA does in your human body. If, if you're under some kind of stress, your body will produce a certain kind of RNA. 
And then when there's less stress, there'll be less RNA. So you really can't say that RNA coming and going is, is anything uh, special. Another study, this time with data from Singapore, did uh, RT-PCR tests almost daily on 18 patients. And the majority of people went from positive to negative back to positive at least once, and up to four times in one patient. So if we assume, again, that a positive test is infected and a negative test is uninfected, then these people went from infected to uninfected to infected in a hospital environment with all the best infection control procedures in the world. How could this be? Well, the most logical thing to think is, well, the test is not accurate. So maybe this, the cycle threshold is too high or too low. But we could move the cycle threshold. Um, this was a cycle threshold of 37. We could move it to 40. And you know maybe some of those people, instead of going positive to negative, would have stayed positive because they would have had a cycle count above um, below 40. But maybe not. Maybe we would have had different people going from positive to negative back to positive. And if we changed it from 37 to, say, 35, we might have the same thing. There's no guarantee that any arbitrary uh, selection of cycle threshold will result in no anomalous test results. But it's so important to the viral theory that people believe the tests, that despite all of this contradictory information, the tests are still treated as if they're absolutely accurate. I listened to the chief health officer of my province of Alberta, a woman named Dina Hinshaw, and I think it's really important to understand that these public health officials are generally not scientists, and they are embedded in a very conservative, hierarchical system where critical thinking is not really encouraged. She said that if you are in contact with a coronavirus case and you test negative, you will be quarantined because you might still be incubating the virus. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the RT-PCR test. She probably learned about antibody tests, and the idea with antibody tests is you get infected with a virus, and some days or weeks later, your body starts to produce a measurable quantity of antibodies, and if you're lucky, it fights off the virus, and you get healthy, and you become immune. So once you have a strong viral uh, antibody response, you will never get sick with that virus again. But that's not how RT-PCR works. According to Buston, the, um, the limit on sensitivity of the test is three molecules of RNA. And he said that with these high cycle counts, you have reached the limit of detection. So what this means is, if there were three molecules of matching RNA in the nasal swab, for example, then you would, uh, you would still test positive. So how could you be in an incubation period? If you have so little RNA in your body, supposedly from the virus, that you're not even getting three molecules in a nasal swab, then how can it be causing um, anything? 
Like, are, are you infected when there is, there is so little? And I would imagine that in, in many of these cases, the people stay negative and stay asymptomatic. So basically, if the test is so great, if somebody tests negative, they're uninfected. This is not like an antibody test. Antibody tests have what is known as a window period, which they often choose as several weeks or several months. And they say if you're negative within that window period after uh, having just been infected, that doesn't mean that you're not infected. Although the whole window period thing is kind of questionable, that is the belief with antibody tests. It's not the belief with RT-PCR. But again, it's, it's a bias towards assuming that more people are positive, more people are infected. So they want to push the cycle count, the cycle threshold to the point where more and more people test positive. They want to interpret negative tests as, you well, you might be positive. I've previously mentioned a, a paper from China where they tested a woman 18 times. She tested negative every time. They really wanted her to be positive, so they just declared that she was infected despite having tested uh, negative so many times. Another problem with the test is that the results can be quite different depending on whether it's a nose sample or a throat sample or some other part or stool sample or some other part of your body. So if the virus is throughout your body, how can this be? Now, obviously, if you had something like a fungal infection, it might just be, say, in your mouth. And if you're intestines were tested or something like that, you might not find any. Uh, but this is a little bit different because viruses are so small, they just flow around your body so easily. So there should be at least small quantities of, your, of the virus everywhere. And given that the RT-PCR test is so ultra-sensitive, it should be possible to, to test them. Again, when they test multiple samples, they generally use an algorithm, which is if we test 10 different samples in your body, and one or two of them test positive, we're going to call you infected, despite the fact that the majority tested negative. Another important point, and this gets back to the very existence of the virus, is that there's no way to distinguish uh, a false positive from a true positive or a false negative from a true negative. If we had a bunch of people testing positive and we suspected that some of the tests were not accurate, how would we come up with a way to determine truly whether or not somebody was infected? Well, the only possible gold standard is the purification of the virus. So in the case of you know, purification of the virus is not easy, so you don't want to do it all the time. RT-PCR test is very fast and quick, and if it works most of the time, that's good. But let's say we've got this 68-year-old man in China, and it's like, okay, well, there's something wrong with the testing here. Uh, let's have a look at it. So when he tests positive the next time, we take some samples, and we run through a process that is known to purify the virus if it's there, and we run through the process, and we do not find any virus. And so we declare him uninfected, and, and the, uh, the attempt to purify the virus is, um, uh, overrides 
any RT-PCR or antibody testing because it's, it's an absolute test. It is a gold standard. And it's possible with testing like this that you can spike the person's sample with, with particles that are similar in size to the, um, to the virus and that you can verify that those particles are present after purification. Again, if, he, um, if you could purify the virus from this person, then when he tests negative again, you could uh, try to purify the virus again. And uh, you might find that the virus is present, but for some reason, the RT-PCR test is producing false negatives. So you could resolve the false positive, false negative thing by purifying the virus. So purification of the virus is not just to see whether the virus actually exists, which I don't believe it does, but if the virus does exist, purification could be a tiebreaker in the case that you have insane test results that obviously cannot all be correct. But at present, there is simply no way to distinguish a true positive from a false positive, and they're not even using common sense. Like if, if somebody tests uh, positive, and they're, you know, 100 miles from the closest uh, other coronavirus case, and they haven't traveled in the last 10 years, and they haven't seen anybody who's another coronavirus case, and they haven't seen anybody from Wuhan, China, or anywhere close to Wuhan, China, you might use common sense and say, well, this probably is a false positive. If they had done that, then maybe Italy wouldn't have had an epidemic, because their first person who tested positive in Italy had no travel history or no connection with other coronavirus cases. And within 24 hours, they had about another 30 cases, none of which had any connection with the first case that they found. So I think that the Italians were just finding random false positives. And it looks like an epidemic uh, because you keep testing and you keep finding cases and it looks like the epidemic spreading. But if you step back and you, you think about false positives, you could say, okay, well, maybe with our test procedure, we're getting 1% of, no matter what group we test, we'll get 1% positive. I, I think understanding more about RT-PCR also allows us to understand better why there are such big differences in the percentage of people who test positive. Now, one of the influences is probably who you decide to test. So if a bunch of people, say in January or February, got off an airplane from Wuhan and um, you tested them, they're probably healthier than average. They may have been working over in Wuhan, um, they may have been tourists, but if they were traveling uh, and working, they were probably relatively healthy. If you test a cruise ship, you have probably a largely reasonably healthy population, but it's skewed towards the elderly. And there will be people who are traveling despite serious health effects. I mean, some people want to go on one last cruise before their life is over. Um, so that's a, a very different population. If you encourage people to go to the hospital and ask for testing based on the vague symptoms that are considered to be coronavirus, like cough and fever, then you are going to have a population that is uniformly sick. 
that's the reason um, they came in. If you encourage people who are just worried to get tested, you're going to have a slightly different population. If you divide the population into those who are stressed out about every new disease that's coming along and those who really don't think about it, there are probably differences between those two populations. So there's going to be a lot of differences depending on which, there's going to be some differences depending on what population you test. Um, now, if it's, if it's viral, you would expect to find a higher level of positives in sick people. But even if it's not viral, it could be that this RNA is produced in response to some respiratory stress, and therefore, if people are sick, you would be more likely to have the RNA. I mean, the fact that there are a lot of asymptomatic people who test positive indicates it's not quite that simple, but it could still produce a bias towards sick people testing positive more often. But I think that looking at the RT-PCR technology, we can see that the testing methodology could make a huge difference in the percentage positive. So for example, in Canada, um, the percent positive is around 1% to 2%, but in the United States, it's around 10%. That's a pretty big difference. In Korea, it was 3 to 5%. Um, is this because the cycle threshold is different? Is it because the reverse transcriptase enzymes are different? What are the differences between uh, the systems? Has anybody tried to normalize the systems? By that, I mean the Koreans sending samples to Canada and having them tested in Canada and the Canadians sending samples to, the, to Korea just to see if they're getting this, the same results. I mean, if, if the uh, Koreans send samples to Canada, which are, say, 3% positive, and the Canadians find 1% positive, then you know that there's, some, there's a big difference between the testing methodology. If the Americans sent a bunch of samples to Canada, of which 10% were positive, and the Canadians came up with 1%, then again, you would know that there was a big difference. It, it appears that a lot of the newer tests are pushing the cycle threshold harder, and that will result in a higher percentage of positives. Um, but I think some differences in the populations who are tested may, may have some influence, but probably the bigger influence is, is how the tests are configured. And one of the things that Bustin did was he basically took the cover off the machine and showed us just how uh, complicated it is inside. It's easy to fall into the trap that if you just put a sample into the machine, press a button, a bunch of lights flash, a piece of paper comes out, or more likely there's a screen that comes up with a report, and you know, you've got 100 samples in there and it gives you 100 different results. You get lulled into complacency and you think, well, the results must be correct. But in actual fact, you have no way of knowing uh, that they are correct. And if a lab on the other side of town is doing the same thing, um, if it tested the same samples, it might very well not come up with the same number of positives and negatives. And it's probably not as simple as one lab would produce more positives and negatives. There probably would be samples in one lab that were negative and positive in the other and vice versa as, as well. There's a lot of complexity which is generally ignored.
I really hope this helps you feel like you understand RT-PCR a little bit better. We took off the hood. Uh, we went in pretty deep. By going over it again, hopefully I've helped you get a somewhat better understanding of this. Uh, it's a fascinating technology. It's incredibly powerful, but it's not without its flaws. And we do tend to be over-reliant on technology. And if it's shiny and flashy and simple to use, we assume that it's perfect. And that's unwarranted. Anyway, now let's go to some feedback. I have a, a lot, and so I want to try to get through some. It's been a while. Do you remember the Jim Steele interview on fires in Australia? That was a crisis way back when. Anyway, Ian wrote, as an aside, having been in Australia during the fires, I took an interest in the interview with Jim Steele. It helped me better distinguish between climate change and natural cycles. So Jim's perspectives helped me a lot. Much appreciated. His comment made me realize how much the world has, has changed. A few months ago, you know, people were, the world is burning up, the Australia is burning to the ground. In Canada, the railway lines were being blocked by indigenous people with a reasonably significant impact on the economy, but nothing like what's happening now. And I think if we could go back to the fires and the minor uh, disputes between peoples, we would all be pretty happy considering what's happened in the current era of coronavirus. John via email wrote, after many years of listening to your show, I'm finally getting around to letting you know that I'm here. Apologies for taking so long. As you're one of the few sane voices speaking on the topic of HIV AIDS and the fraudulent vaccination paradigm, it was inevitable that I would stumble across your work eventually in my search for solid evidence concerning these matters. I'm looking forward to reading your book when it's finished. Your latest report on the coronavirus pandemic was very good. Well done on finding the detail underlining the misleading reports coming from the medical cartel. You answered the questions that I was asking but wasn't finding useful reporting on. Cheryl Atkinson provided a, similar, a relatively similar study summary of the situation, which you probably told me about, but if not, here's the link. And uh, yeah, Cheryl Atkinson and I don't agree on everything, but she was a really good reporter, and, and um, uh, you know some of her reporting got her into trouble, which is what happens if you're a really good reporter, and some of her stuff is really good. Fabola, via email, I discovered your website through Dr. Cowan, and I've been listening to your podcast. It's fantastic. I know you've cited some studies in your podcast, but because I'm not a scientist, I've been struggling to understand this. Somebody sent me this study saying that testing studying for coronavirus satisfied Cox postulates in mice. I read it, but it was hard to follow. Can you comment? So I looked at this paper. I've lo I looked at it a couple times. I got so many questions on this one paper because it claims to have satisfied Cox postulates that I, I wrote down some notes so I wouldn't have to keep rereading the paper and reanalyzing it. So impure materials called a virus isolate were obtained and then cultured in varro cells with various growth-stimulating substances. The experiments they did only worked on transgenic mice without a proper immune system, not regular mice. Seven transgenic mice were injected intranasally with a hypodermic up the nose with cell culture material, not pure virus. Three transgenic control mice injected with phosphate-buffered saline, basically a salt solution, uh, we're also in the experiment. 
They treated transgenic mice, lost weight, and showed signs of pneumonia. Maybe some of the cell culture material got into their lungs and caused an immune reaction because they didn't have a proper immune system. By comparison, a little bit of saline wouldn't do this. In claims to have fulfilled Cox postulates but in the absence of virus purification, this is a bald-faced lie. Someone anonymously wrote via email, by the way, David, I think you read too fast for us foreigners. Slow and clearly, please. Have a nice day. Well, I, I will try to speak clearly and not too fast. I, I know that if uh, English is not your first language, it's, it's challenging. And I can only speak so slowly before um, native English speakers get tired of with me. This person posted some of um, the audio on BitChute, which is kind of like YouTube. And I don't mind you doing this uh, as long as you, like this person, post contact information for me. This is not because I want credit as much as I want people to be able to contact me if they have questions about the audio. People have a right, if you're posting a conversation, people have a right to know where it came from and who said it. And if they want to challenge it, they have a right to be able to reach out to that person. Devin via email, you appear to be one of the select few out there who remembers that we are still, for the time being, allowed to ask questions and propose thoughts that do not echo the mainstream thought pattern. Clifford on Facebook, once again, thank you for all of the critical content you are sharing. Tomislav, email, hi David, I just wanted to thank you for the great work you are doing. Bravo. Marcy on Facebook, I just wanted to reach out and tell you that we too are feeling the same as you. This craziness is almost too much to bear, given the behavior of those that are not doing any research. Please know that there are people who greatly appreciate what you're doing. Our thanks to you. Madalena via email. I just wanted to say thank you for the wonderful PDF on coronavirus panic that you wrote. It's really well done, and I could understand many scientific things in such a depth that I wasn't aware of before. Audrey via email. What a wonderful world of knowledge on these podcasts. I listen to them every morning for an hour or more while I walk, walk in my neighborhood. Nobody has reported or arrested me yet, although I'm over 70 and possibly breaking some of Mr. Legault's rules. Uh, she lives in Quebec, where Legault is the uh, premier of the province. I love what you say and do, and I have clicked on as many links as possible related to you and the infectious myth. What a treasure, if only there were more hours in a day. Well, I guess one thing that we all have now is more time. Shingo via email, I stumbled upon your resources after some research of all the opponents of viral theory, and I am very impressed and comforted by the depth of your information. Skip, I thank you for your courageous posts and radio shows. Extremely rare beacons in this time of darkness and global capital Nazism. Valerie via email, thank you for your hard work on the coronavirus paper. As a medical professional in the US, I appreciate the quality of your work and the information presented. I have been passing along the information and educating people on the PCR testing and recommending your work. It's providing a level of comfort to know that there is still a dedication to critical reasoning, transparency, and a call for the field of medicine to practice better science, to promote informed consent, physiologically appropriate interventions, and support health and wellness. Thank you, and please continue your hard work. Heather via email, great work your podcasts. I wanted to share my husband's recent experience with the doctor. He was not feeling well, so they set up a teleconference. 
Since this whole lockdown has occurred, he's had heartburn and trouble sleeping, just for starters. So they told him that he had to self-isolate, but not to test for COVID-19. So the doctors are blaming everything on COVID-19 so much that they can't practice medicine now. No wonder Americans have no faith in the medical system. Well, I think it extends beyond America. Feedback on the James Lyons Weiler podcast, my second podcast on coronavirus, I guess. Sandra, I'm not so convinced by what he says regarding education to distance or wiping one's seat on the public transportation, etc. I recently heard a reputable doctor from Italy make a point about antibacterial soaps. Basically, he was saying that we have very powerful bacteria in our body which protects us against viruses. If we kill them, we make ourselves more vulnerable. I don't know how true this may be, but according to Dr. Lyons-Weiler, it seems we have no immunity. On another note, I'm curious whether you received the paper you requested on the isolation of the coronavirus. No, I did not receive the paper on the isolation of the coronavirus, and I just read an article from the CDC uh, indicating that calls to poison control centers for cleaners and disinfectants have increased dramatically since March. Uh, and uh, in particular, children are being poisoned by careless use of these substances, people leaving an open bottle on the table and so on. So if you are going to use uh, more cleaners and disinfectants, please be very careful with them. They are poisonous. And also, if you get them on your hands, they will, to some extent, be absorbed. So it's, it's best to be extremely careful. Thank you for listening to episode 252 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. Like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to Infectious Myth, one word, on patreon.com or liberapay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>